Hello and welcome to the Film Jerk Podcast. I am your host, Edward Havens, publisher and editor of FilmJerk.com. Today, we're going to begin an irregular series which will take a look back at a minor cinematic phenomenon that happened more often in the 1980s than in any other decade, the one-time-only distribution company. In the last 15 years or so, there's been a handful of companies pop up whose mission it is to help filmmakers who can't otherwise get a distribution deal with a studio or independent distributor the apparatus to get their films into theaters. Most notably, freestyle releasing and indie rights. So, let's say I made a movie called Lucky Day, starring Billy Zane and Eric Roberts, and I didn't get a single bite from any distributor when I sent it off to their acquisitions departments. I could go to Freestyle and, if I had the money, pay them to use their distribution pipeline to get my movie out to theaters, whether it be in one screen or 1,000. Whatever my budget called for whatever I could afford. And I chose Freestyle to illustrate, as they've actually had some successes over the years bringing movies to theaters. Lexi Alexander's Green Street Hooligans, Neil Berger's The Illusionist with Edward Norton, Sidney Lumet's Find Me Guilty with Vin Diesel, Uba Bull's Postal, Left Behind with Nick Cage, the Mike Epps comedy Meet the Blacks, and most successfully, the first God's Not Dead movie. That's just a few of the nearly 200 films that Freestyle had helped filmmakers bring to theaters when no one else would. Today, with the advent of digital cinema, it's cheaper than ever to get a movie into cinemas. One no longer needs to spend upwards of $10,000 to make one single 35mm theatrical print. You can now store your one digital file on a server at a centralized location, and a theater can download the file at their convenience via a satellite. It's a wonderful equalizer for independent filmmakers. But back in the 1980s, this really wasn't an option to most. Many would-be movie moguls would need to raise some serious coin in order to create the pipeline to get a steady stream of movies into theaters. For some filmmakers who either couldn't sell their film to a distributor or didn't want to have to deal with the compromises that would come with partnering with someone else, They would take the time to get that machine going for one film and one film only. On this episode, we'll take a look back at two of these orphan films. The first film is Tinto Brass's infamous erotic historical drama, Caligula. Back in the 1970s, there were three major men's lifestyle magazines. Playboy, created and published by Hugh Hefner, was by far the largest and most popular. Larry Flint's Hustler was its trashy and less popular little cousin, and somewhere in the middle was Bob Guccione's Penthouse magazine. A self-made man who at one point was one of Forbes's 400 richest men in the world, Bob Guccione still had an inferiority complex when it came to Hugh Hefner and Playboy magazine. So when Hef started producing movies in the early 1970s, starting with Roman Polanski's $2.4 million adaptation of William Shakespeare's Macbeth, Guccione had to do things one better. Guccione would help fund the productions of Polanski's Chinatown, Robert Aldrich's The Longest Yard, and John Schlesinger's The Day of the Locust, but he would be on the lookout for something special to make his first official foray into film production, an explicit adult movie that featured major stars and a top-name director and had Hollywood-level production values. 
After some research, Guccione would decide to make a movie based on the life of Gaius Caesar Augustus Germanicus, also known as Caligula, the third Roman emperor, who ruled between AD 37 and AD 41. Known for his cruelty, sadism, and sexual perversions, Caligula was the perfect character for Bob Guccione to focus his efforts on. In late 1974, after failing to get Federico Fellini to take on the film, Guccione would hire Italian filmmaker Lina Wertmuller, whose most recent film Swept Away was becoming an international sensation, to both write the screenplay and direct the film. But Guccione found her screenplay to be rather chaste, and that, plus her desire to hire Jack Nicholson as Caligula, and wanting the movie to be titled Lena Wertmuller's Caligula, would find her released from her contract. Guccione would then hire famed postmodern writer Gore Vidal to write a new screenplay, paying Vidal $200,000 and offering 10% of the profits, a record for a screenwriting fee at that time, and most likely the first time a writer would be offered points. Vidal was amongst the most famous writers in the world, who had not only written a number of historical novels during his career to that point, such as the 1964 novel about the 4th century Roman emperor Julian the Apostate, but was one of the writers who would doctor the screenplay for the Best Picture winner of 1959, the religious epic Ben-Hur. If there was any writer working who could make a movie about a Roman emperor fairly historically accurate and entertaining and sexy, it was Gore Vidal. Nearly a year after he was hired to write the screenplay, Vidal would walk into Guccione's New York City offices to personally hand over his final draft. Guccione hated it. Starting with the title page, which read, Gore Vidal's Caligula. As Guccione continued to read the screenplay, he became more incensed. He wanted something sexy that could help promote Penthouse magazine, but instead was given something filled with several homosexual acts, but only one act of heterosexual sex, which would not fit with the penthouse aura. And co-producer Franco Rossellini, the nephew of legendary Italian filmmaker Roberto Rossellini, felt the screenplay as written would have cost more than $40 million to make, the equivalent of $190 million in November of 2021. He may have been amongst the richest men in the world then, but even Bob Guccione knew just how hard it would be to recoup that kind of budget, especially for an erotic film for adults. But there was enough within Vidal's screenplay to work with, Guccione felt. So despite having zero experience as a screenwriter, he would start to rewrite Vidal's script himself. Once he felt he had a great screenplay, Guccione went on the hunt for a new director. Roberto Rossellini was asked to direct as a favor for his nephew, but he wasn't up to the task. John Huston was contacted, who was amused but politely declined. Several other major filmmakers would decide they didn't want to have a highbrow porn film on their resume, so Guccione would pivot. He was already considering filming in Rome, and after seeing a pre-release screening of the French-Italian-West German co-production Salon Kitty, Guccione would set up a lunch meeting with the film's director, Tinto Brass. 
An Italian filmmaker who had not seen much success outside of his native country during his dozen years of directing, Brass would jump at the chance to direct a big-budget American production backed by one of the richest men in the world. But he also wanted his own chance to rewrite the screenplay. Brass would not touch Vidal's dialogue, but he would add a number of additional orgy scenes filled with the lascivious female nudity his producer and financier would relish. The production would begin at Deer Studios in Rome in July 1976, with Malcolm McDowell as the titular emperor, Helen Mirren as Caligula's wife Caesonia, Peter O'Toole as Emperor Tiberius, who preceded Caligula as emperor, and John Gielgud as Nerva a celebrated Roman jurist who was a trusted advisor of Tiberius. Maria Schneider, who had recently become famous worldwide for her erotic starring role against Marlon Brando in Bernardo Berlucci's Last Tango in Paris, was cast as Caligula's sister Drusilla, but she would become uneasy with director Brass and the required amount of nudity for the role, and she would leave the production almost as soon as it began. Brass would call his Salon Kitty co-star Teresa Ann Savoy to check her availability. Savoy would be on set within days without the production being interrupted. Brass would also clash with O'Toole throughout the production, although the director and McDowell would, as they say, get along famously. Moren and Gilgood didn't care all that much for Brass, but being professionals, they would come to work, do what was asked of them, and leave at the end of the day. The shoot would last nearly six months, completing the day before Christmas, forcing several of the major stars to rush to get home in time to open presents with their family the next day. After New Year's 1977, Brass, who had shot nearly 150 hours of footage, started to assemble his cut of the film. After putting together roughly the first 60 minutes of the movie, Brass would screen that section for Guccione. To say the producer hated what he saw would be an understatement. Guccione had spent millions to have production designer Danilo Donati, a two-time Academy Award winner for creating the costumes for 1967's Romeo and Juliet and for Fellini's Casanova in 1976, design fabulous sets and costumes and jewelries and wig for the production but Brass had not fully framed the film to take in all of the set's majesty. Brass had also shot most of the sex scenes with the sexiest penthouse pets standing in the background while simulated sex was happening in the foreground and with some of the lesser attractive actresses. Guccione wanted unsimulated sex for the film, so he would lock Brass out of the editing studio before he and his director of post-production, Giancarlo Louis, would hire a local skeleton film crew and sneak several local Italian actors and some penthouse pets into the studio late at night, where a number of the sets still stood. They would raid the wardrobe department for some costumes and shoot a number of hardcore sex scenes over five days of filming. Guccione would take the new footage and everything Brass had shot to England to re-edit the film, but because of Italian laws meant to protect filmmakers and their films, Guccione would have all of the cans remarked as being a film called My Son, My Son to avoid detection by Italian authorities. Guccione would hire the film processing company Technicolor in London 
to create the interpositive prints needed to edit the film. But when technicians at the printing plant figured out the film they were printing was considered illegal under British law, they would go on strike. Word would get around the British film industry about what Guccione was doing, and he would eventually need to smuggle the negatives out of London via Paris into New York City. Brass, who was incensed by Guccione's behavior, would demand his name be removed from the film. And once word got to Gore Vidal about how the production completely screwed with his script, he too would demand Guccione remove his name from the film. Their fight would become so contentious, even the New York Magazine would write about the feud in a March 1979 issue, which highlighted how the writer and the penthouse publisher were, and I quote the magazine, at odds over orgy pick. Guccione would claim to writer Philip Nobile that Vidal wanted his name removed from the movie, but still wanted his 10% cut of the profits, to which Vidal said he offered back the 10% to Guccione in exchange for removing his name from the film. Guccione denies Vidal ever made that offer, which he says he would have gladly accepted. Vidal said he had gotten a copy of the dubbing script for the movie, so he knew exactly what kind of sleazy porn Guccione was trying to pull on an unsuspecting audience that might be drawn in because of his name was on the screenplay, and claimed that every major studio had already churned down the film for release. Guccione claims that he had only shown the movie to a friend at Warner Brothers by then, and only for advice and comments. It's hard to take Guccione at his word. By March 1979, the film would have finished production two years earlier and he still didn't have a distribution deal with anyone. A not very good sign for a $14 million movie with major stars like Malcolm McDowell and Peter O'Toole. Although Guccione would tell the magazine writer that the two-and-a-half-hour film would probably open in New York City that summer. Guccione had shown the film to practically every major film studio and practically every independent distributor, and no one wanted anything to do with it. Three years after production had begun on the film, Guccione was running out of time. He needed to make a move, and quick. Bob Guccione decided that he would release the film himself. But what he would do is not necessarily start his own full-fledged distribution company, but create 35mm prints as he needed, and four-wall the movie wherever he could. Forewalling, for those who are unaware of this practice, is when a filmmaker literally buys the four walls of a theater from an exhibitor for a specific amount of time. The exhibitor gets a flat fee for the time frame agreed upon, and the filmmaker gets to keep 100% of the ticket sales. Normally, a distributor gets a sliding scale of the ticket sales, one that favors the distributor in the early weeks but favors the exhibitor if the film plays for longer than, say, four or five weeks. For a big movie like Star Wars or a Marvel movie, that split could be as high as 90% to the distributor and 10% to the theater in the first week, then going to 80-20 the second week, 70-30 the third week, and so on until the split hits a 35-65 threshold in favor of the theater after the seventh week. Penthouse Films, as Guccione would name his operation, would make a deal with New York City-based Translux Theaters 
to forewall their Translux East Theater on 3rd Avenue in Midtown Manhattan for an open-ended run of Caligula beginning February 1st, 1980. And, as part of that deal, Guccione would be allowed to rename the theater the Penthouse East Theater as long as Caligula played there. Always be promoting your brand. But when it came time to start promoting the film, Guccione would hit another major snag. All the major New York City-based newspapers and magazines would refuse to accept his advertising for the film. Not that the key art for the film was provocative or daring. It simply showed a dented first-century coin with a side profile of Malcolm McDowell's Caligula on it with a teardrop of blood coming out of the eye region. The newspapers and magazines refused because Guccione had pretty much pissed everyone in the New York City publishing world off over the years and had few friends willing to help him out. When the movie did open on February 1st, not only would there not be a single ad for the movie in any of the major New York City daily newspapers, their listings for the theater would still read Translux East Theater and would suggest potential film attendees call the theater for the show and the showtimes. By week two, the New York Times would even drop the theater from the daily movie listings altogether. But Guccione would finally get some relief in week three. The Times might not have accepted an ad for the movie, but at least the theater would be back in the Daily Showtimes listing and would be credited as the Penthouse East Theater. Perhaps part of the frustration from the newspapers and magazines came from the fact that Guccione refused to show the movie to critics before it was released and would force them to pay the same $7.50 premium ticket price to see the movie as any other regular John Doe would have. This at a time when the top ticket price for a movie in New York City was less than half that price. The few critics who actually bothered to pay for a ticket to see the movie, even if they would get reimbursed by their employer for a job-related expense, found Caligula to be a confusing and insufferable mess. And who could blame them? The credits alone for the film were confusing to just about anyone who watched it. There is no credited screenwriter, only a notice that the film was adapted from a screenplay by Gore Vidal. There are no credited editors, only that the movie was edited by, quote, the production, unquote. And there is no credited director. There is a notice that principal photography was done by Tinto Brass, although that implies Brass was the cinematographer and not the director. While there is a second notice that additional scenes were directed and photographed by Giancarlo Lui and Bob Guccione. And there is no listed distributor. There is only a production of penthouse films. There are no hard numbers, no pun intended, for how well the film did. Movies that are self-distributed and exhibited through four-wall deals do not need to report box office grosses publicly and cannot necessarily be found at a later date in some company's stock filing. Some contemporary reports from the early 80s, including an article in the October 21, 1981 issue of the Industry Trade Bible Variety, would estimate the film had grossed around $13.5 million while other sources would estimate the number was closer to $90 million. Does it matter? Not really. 
Only Bob Guccione himself would know how well it did, and he passed away in 2010, so we can't ask. But outside of New York City, the film would only play in one or two theaters in each city it played in for a couple of weeks. That is, if the print wasn't seized by local officials on the grounds of indecency. Shortly after the film opened in Boston, local authorities seized the print of the movie showing at the Saxon Theater under the guise of a local obscenity law. Guccione, who loved controversy, relished the opportunity to go to court against the prudish locals, knowing the case would bring the kind of publicity to the film that no amount of paid marketing could. The local judge would, after a short trial, rule that while the film might be lacking in artistic and scientific value, its depiction of corruption in ancient Rome contained political values which enabled it to pass the Miller Test, also known as the Three-Prong Obscenity Test, which the Supreme Court had established in 1973. In order for Caligula to be considered legally obscene, it had to pass a three-prong test. One, whether an average person, applying contemporary community standards, would find that the work, taken as a whole, appeals to the prurient interest. Two, whether the work depicts or describes, in a patently offensive way, sexual conduct or excretory functions specifically defined by applicable local law, and three, whether the work, taken as a whole, lacks serious literary, artistic, political, or scientific value. It might not have been a good movie, and it might not have been an interesting movie, but gosh darn it, Caligula had a message. Absolute power corrupts absolutely, and thus Caligula was allowed to continue its Boston run. There'd also be legal threats made against the film in Atlanta, Los Angeles, and Fairlawn, Ohio, a suburb of Akron. But once the Boston ruling came through, most local legislators left it alone. And while the film was mostly played out by the end of the summer season, Guccione continued to play the movie to mostly empty houses in Los Angeles New York City and Washington, D.C. through late spring of 1981. Bob Guccione would pull the film from theaters because he had decided he was going to cut more than 30 minutes out of the film to tone down the levels of violence and nudity and remove all of the hardcore sex scenes and try to give the film a proper theatrical release. Penthouse Films would submit the new 117-minute cut of the film to the Motion Picture Association's ratings board and the edited version of Caligula would secure an R rating. Guccione would team with New York City-based independent distributor Analysis Films, who had distributed such diverse fare as Gilliam Armstrong's My Brilliant Career and William Lustig's Maniac, to release the tamer version into 170 theaters, including 55 in the greater New York City metropolitan area, on October 16, 1981. The New York papers were only too happy to take the money from analysis films for full-page ads touting the movie, using the same key art that was rejected a year and a half earlier. In addition to New York City, the first break would include 30 theaters in Texas and 80 across Florida. 
The following week, analysis would open the film in Atlanta and across North Carolina, while Baltimore, Denver, Detroit, Memphis, and Washington, D.C. would see the new cut of the film in early November. By the end of the year, the R-rated Caligula would be playing in over 500 theaters. It is estimated that this version of the film grossed $9.9 million during its six-month run in theaters, which is not fantastic, but it's not bad for a second, tamer version of a previously released film. As of November 2021, Caligula is not available to stream on any streaming service, nor is it available on any current home video format, at least in America. You can pick up an Australian Region Zero DVD of the 150-minute version off Amazon if you really want to see it. I've seen it. It's basically Pasolini's Salo, without any artistic merits whatsoever to speak of. If you don't know Salo, that's fine. It's a gruesome and difficult movie to watch. An orgy of film debauchery that you cannot unsee once you've seen it. Our second film was a personal film for Bud Yorkin. For most of his entertainment career, Bud Yorkin was known as one half of Tandem Productions. Along with his partner, Norman Lear, Yorkin was the producer of some of the most successful television shows of the 1970s, including All in the Family, Good Times, Maud, and Sanford and Son. After Yorkin and Lear split up in the mid 70s, Yorkin's next production company would produce Carter Country and What's Happening. But before he co produced these shows, Yorkin also directed movies. His first film, Come Blow Your Horn, released in 1963, was an adaptation of Neil Simon's first play and starred Frank Sinatra. He also directed the Dick Van Dyke comedy Divorce American Style in 1967, an attempt to make an Inspector Clouseau movie in 1969 without Blake Edwards or Peter Sellers or Henry Mancini, and the Gene Wilder, Donald Sutherland French Revolution comedy Start the Revolution Without Me in 1970. In the early 1980s, nearly a decade removed from his last movie, The Thief Who Came to Dinner, Bud Yorkin came across a screenplay by Colin Whelan, the Oscar-winning screenwriter of Chariots of Fire, called Kisses at 50, which Whelan had expanded from an hour-long show he had written for the BBC back in 1973. Kisses at 50 was in active development at the production company The Ladd Company, operated by former 20th Century Fox executive Alan Ladd Jr., for whom Yorkin was producing Blade Runner at the time. Yorkin fell hard for the script and offered to produce and direct the film for Ladd. Ladd didn't feel Yorkin, best known as a master developer of comedy material, was the best fit for this project. Yorkin even offered to finance the $8 million movie himself. Ladd not only declined Yorkin's offer to put the money up, he would put the film into turnaround in late 1982, which would quickly be picked up by the British production company ITC, which was hoping to get another hit out of the writer of the most recent Best Picture Oscar winner but ITC would put the project in a turnaround themselves in April of 1984. Yorkin was ready to pounce again, and on May 7, 1984, Yorkin would have an agreement to purchase the rights to the screenplay from ITC, 
And within two months, he would be in production on the film in Seattle. Jorgen would assemble a fantastic cast for his film. Gene Hackman stars as Harry McKenzie, a factory worker who is dreading his upcoming 50th birthday. He is somewhat relieved when his wife Kate, played by Ellen Burstyn, not only does not throw him a big birthday party, but tells him to just go head down to his favorite bar and have a good time with his friends. At the bar, Harry falls for Audrey, an attractive barmaid played by Anne Margaret, with whom he begins an affair. Shortly after the affair starts, Harry announces to his wife that he wants a divorce so he can be with Audrey. Naturally, this causes some deep issues within the Mackenzie family, especially his daughters Sonny, played by Amy Madigan, and Helen, played by Ali Sheedy. Sonny is in the middle of marriage issues of her own, and Helen is about to get married herself. And the remainder of the film is how the various family members learn to move on from Harry and Kate's split. Yorkin would round the cast out with Stephen Lang and Brian Dennehy, because Dennehy was contractually obligated to appear in every single movie made between 1982 and 1989. Maybe Yorkin's attraction to the material was subconscious, or maybe it was deliberate, as Yorkin's own 30-year marriage to his wife Peg would deteriorate during the production of the film. But this wouldn't be the only significant issue during the production. In mid-August, ITC sued Yorkin for breach of contract, as Yorkin apparently never signed the agreement for him to purchase the rights to the screenplay. While Yorkin continued to work on the film in Seattle, his lawyers in Los Angeles worked out a new agreement. Yorkin would own the film, but ITC would own the rights to distribute the film outside of the United States and on home video. Bud Yorkin would finish editing the film in spring of 1985, and the film would make its world premiere at the Seattle International Film Festival on May 9, 1985, complete with a brand new title, Twice in a Lifetime. The film would garner great buzz from the festival, and Yorkin would feel offers from a number of distributors, both studios and independents, to release the movie. But Yorkin would instead take some of his fortune to add a distribution apparatus to his production company, Bud Yorkin Productions, with plans to release the film in the late fall. After screening to more positive buzz at the Toronto International Film Festival in September, Yorkin would release the film on one screen, the Beekman Theatre in Manhattan, on Wednesday, October 23rd. The film would garner two thumbs up from Siskel and Ebert, and rave reviews from the likes of Judith Christ, Rex Reed, Andrew Saris, and Bruce Williamson of Playboy magazine, and would gross over $68,000 from a single screen in its first five days of release. The film would add screens in Los Angeles, Seattle, and Toronto the following Friday, November 1st, and after four weeks, on just four screens, Twice in a Lifetime would gross an extremely impressive $450,000. After six weeks and $600,000 in grosses, Yorkin would expand the film to 100 screens on December 6th and expand it into 150 screens on Christmas Day. A few days before Christmas, 
Jorgen received an unexpected bit of good news. He had spent hundreds of thousands of dollars promoting the movie in the trade papers Variety and The Hollywood Reporter and hosting dozens of screenings of the film for various guild members, but no one was expecting anything to come from these efforts. But something did. The Hollywood Foreign Press Association nominated the film in two categories, Best Actor in a Drama for Gene Hackman and Best Supporting Actress for Amy Madigan. While the announcements would have come too late to alter the newspaper ads for Christmas Day, the nominations would be touted the next day. The first weekend of 1985, the film would have its first weekend of grossing more than a million dollars while still playing on only 186 screens. By the final weekend of January, Jorgen would have the film in 436 theaters, an amazing number for a company that would only ever release one movie in its lifetime. And then on February 5th, Jorkin received even more exciting news. The Motion Picture Academy had nominated Amy Madigan for Best Supporting Actress. After three months and more than $3 million in advertising support, Jorkin had hoped for more love from the Academy, but his film had received an Academy Award nomination which in and of itself was a major victory. But Madigan, for whom this film is strangely still her only Oscar nomination, would lose to Angelica Houston for Pritzi's Honor. After a 61-week run in theaters, Twice in a Lifetime would have sold $8.4 million in ticket sales. Yorkin would end up losing millions making and releasing the movie himself, but he didn't care. He made the movie his way. He released it his way. And he marketed it his way. That's what he was aiming for. So he considered the release very much a success. But Jorkin wasn't done battling ITC about the film. In September of 1989, Jorkin would file a $3 million antitrust suit against ITC for failing to properly market the television rights to the film. It was Yorkin's position that ITC refused to sell the television rights to the film on its own, but package it to stations along with 15 other movies that Yorkin considered to be of far inferior value. It would take more than three years for the suit to go through the court system, but in October of 1992, a jury would decide that Yorkin was absolutely correct, that ITC had violated antitrust laws by block booking twice in a lifetime instead of allowing stations to purchase individual titles if they so desired. Yorkin would be awarded $2.45 million in damages. Today, Twice in a Lifetime is not available to rent or own on any streaming service in the United States. It was once available to purchase as a full-frame print-on-demand DVD from the Warner Archives collection, but you can no longer order it from the Warner Archive. And as of October 16, 2021, when I wrote this segment of the podcast, there was only one DVD available to purchase from Amazon. Join us in two weeks when we visit more of The Orphans, three completely forgotten comedies from the middle of the decade, two tied together through the same production company, and one featuring the first starring role for one of today's most gifted talents, Pamela Adlon. We'll talk again soon. The Film Jerk Podcast has been researched, written, 
narrated and edited by Edward Havens for Idiosyncratic Entertainment. Thank you for listening. Good night. <laughs>